question I have for you tonight is who are you? Or I should say, whose are you? You might say, I'm a Christian, right? I'm a child of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm a saint. I'm a disciple. All these different titles for those who believe in Jesus Christ, in his word. I'm a friend of God. But what I want to look at tonight is the title bondservant, the title slave. And that's the title many of the apostles use of themselves in the scripture. And Jesus uses this word as well. And as I was putting together this message, it came together because I was at work, working at the Ventura County Rescue Mission, just came from work, and uh, they asked me to teach last Thursday morning on Titus chapter 1. And the week, two weeks prior, I taught on 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the qualifications of an elder in the church. And Titus chapter 1 is very similar in many regards um, to 1 Timothy 3. And as I was praying about this message for these men at the rescue mission, I I thought, you know, Lord, I know that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped thoroughly for every good work, right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But I thought I've already taught on this, on a lot of these qualifications of an elder, and I want to reach these men. Every time I teach the men at the mission, I want it to be impactful, right? I want their eyes to be open, their hearts to have a moldable heart to receive the good news. And as I was teaching through Titus chapter 1, it hit me, the first part of the first verse, Paul, a bond servant of God. Paul, a bond servant of God. I wanted the men at the mission to understand what it means to be a bond servant of God, and that is what I want us to dive deeper in tonight. And so what we're going to do is just take a tour through the New Testament and look at this Greek word. What did Jesus have to say about it? What did Paul have to say about it? What about Peter and James and Jude and John? Did they use this term to describe themselves? And what exactly does it mean? And so Jesus uses this Greek word several times. I think Paul uses this Greek word, it's called doulos. Doulos is the Greek word here. Paul probably uses it more than any other time and any other person in the New Testament. It's used 126 times in the New Testament. And the word literally means one who is enslaved, someone who belongs to another without any ownership rights of their own. It's used of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. One who gives himself up wholly to another's will. One who says, I'm giving up my entire will to you. I have no rights of my own. Not Jesus, you can have three quarters of my life. You can have half of my life. You can have my home reading or my home life and my Bible reading life, but you can't have my work life. That's not how it works, right? To be a bondservant of God means that you're giving God your entire life. You're giving up all your own rights. This is a metaphor used throughout the New Testament to describe our relationship with God and our relationship with Christ. 
slave to master, bondservant to lord, servant to king. He has all ownership rights over us. Now, when we use the word slave to describe our relationship with God, many people can think, or what first comes to your mind when you hear that? You think of the 16th through 19th century slavery in America, right? The slavery that happened when men were essentially stolen from another country based off the color of their skin, sold as slaves in our country. And in God's eyes, that is a horrible, wicked thing. According to GodQuestions.org, it's a website. I wouldn't go there for some pre-trib articles or Calvinism articles or some of the articles on there I wouldn't necessarily trust, but they do have a couple good articles. And here's one that says, What many fail to understand is that slavery in the biblical times was very different from the slavery that was practiced in the past few centuries in many parts of the world. The slavery in the Bible was not based exclusively on race. People were not enslaved because of their nationality or the color of their skin. In Bible times, slavery was based more on economics. It was a matter of social status. People sold themselves as slaves when they could not pay their debts or provide for their families. In New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, and even politicians were slaves of someone else. Some people actually chose to be slaves so as to have all their needs provided by their masters. The slavery of the past few centuries, however, contrary to that, was based on skin color, right? In the United States, many black people were considered slaves because of their nationality. Many slave owners truly believed black people to be inferior human beings. And of course, the Bible condemns this. It condemns race-based slavery in that it teaches that all men are created by God. Jesus redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. In addition, this article goes on to say, both the Old and New Testaments condemn the practice of man-stealing, which is what happened in Africa in the 16th and 19th centuries. Africans were rounded up by slave hunters who sold them to slave traders who brought them into the new world. There's no way to justify this practice. It's condemned all over the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's abhorrent to God. In fact, the penalty for such a crime in the Mosaic Law was death. Man-stealing gets the death penalty. Anyone who kidnaps another, Exodus twenty-one sixteen. anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Similarly, in the New Testament, slave traders are listed among those who are ungodly and sinful and are in the same category as those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, adulterers, and perverts, liars, and perjurers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. So I wanted to kind of establish that before I go into this teaching on our relationship with Christ, our relationship with God, how he's our master and we're his slave. And we want to get this negative connotation, this, this horrific slave trade, that, that kind of slavery out of our minds when we're thinking about our relationship to Christ, our relationship to God. He's a perfect, loving, tender, gentle, king, lord 
master. The article goes on to say, during the time of Jesus in the first century, as much as one-third of the Roman population were slaves. So as Jesus is teaching, as Paul is teaching, as the apostles are teaching, they're drawing from this physical reality as an illustration of our relationship with God. This article goes on to say, another third had been slaves earlier in life. It was common for freeborn men and women to work side by side with slaves as street sweepers, as dock workers, as doctors, as teachers, as business managers. You could be a doctor and you could be a slave. You could be a dock worker and a slave during the time of Christ and the apostles. Convicted criminals became bond servants of the state and usually died working in the mines or on galleys. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 25, 23. Words you're probably familiar with. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Who's the master? Who's the slave? Right there. We're the slave, right? One chapter earlier, Matthew twenty-four forty-five. Jesus said, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. We see these illustrations all throughout the scripture. Bondservants of God belong to him. That's what I want to get across to us tonight. That we submit every part of our being to God. Every thought, every desire, every feeling, everything. Our entire life we submit to God because he's our Lord we're his bondservant. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Not some old things. Old things, our old life, our old sin, the practicing of sin in our life has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when I ask, who are you? Whose are we? We are the Lord's. We are his bondservant. I remember working for a boss in an old job of mine, Enterprise Rent-A-Car. He was a nice guy. He, he, he went to master's college, told me he was a Christian, but at work he would curse around me. He would propose shady business practices. He would almost never talk about God, never really talk about the Bible or his word, but was, what was interesting to me was he would tell me how he would go home at night and he would read his children Bible stories because he wanted to raise them in the Lord. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, that's, that's great that he wants to raise his children in the Lord and read them Bible stories. It seems that God is Lord of that part of his life. You know, God's part of my home life, maybe my Sunday morning life, but not my work life. I can coarse jest and I can joke with the guys and I can curse and I can do shady business practices at work. Then I go home at night and I read the Bible and I'm a Christian. God's Lord of that part of my life, but he's not Lord of everything. Is God Lord of every part of your life, no matter where you go? When you get home from work and you pop in a movie, you watch the television, is God Lord of that part of your life? God wants us to submit everything, every part of our life to him. Wherever we go, whatever we do, 
He wants to be Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus wants to be Lord of every part of our life. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave, Greek word doulos, above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he may become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they insult the members of his household? He also says in Luke 17, 10, So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded you, you should say, he's talking to the disciples, this is what we say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. When we tithe, when we minister to others, when we serve the church, when we bless the Lord and we go throughout our days being bright lights in this dark world and sharing the gospel. These aren't like brownie points that we're scoring with the Lord and we we can just say, look at me, look at all these things I did. At the end of the day, what we say and at the end of our lives, what we say is we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's the humble posture that God wants us to have. John 13, 15 Jesus said, for I gave you an example so that you also would do just as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is anyone who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Right before this, two chapters earlier, John 13, 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because I am. What does it mean to be Lord? Greek dictionary, lexicon, says a person who's exercising absolute ownership rights. Goes on to say, master. He's our Lord. He's our master. We don't use that word Lord typically in our culture much. I thought of landlord, right? Maybe you rent a house, an apartment, townhome. The landlord. What are they in charge of? The house, right? They own the house. They make the decisions, If I'm renting a house, can I go around the house and just paint all the rooms, whatever I want? And can I just start changing things all around the house? And it's probably not going to go over with the owner, right? It's not going to go over well unless I ask them first, hey, can I do this? Or I'm going to have to pay for it, right? Because they have absolute ownership rights of that house. I don't. I'm just renting. Likewise, Jesus is Lord of our life. He's master He's the one that is in supreme authority. What do the apostles say about this Greek word doulos? James. James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Peter. 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude and Jude 1 1. Jude 1 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. You get to Revelation. The Apostle John. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ who God gave him to show his bondservants, the thing which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God. Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Christ. Paul and Timothy, a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. This is the way the apostles viewed themselves. He's our master. We're his slave. We're his bondservant. Is that how you view your relationship with God? I truly believe in these dark days, craziness all around us, the love of many is growing cold, right? Just like the scripture says in the last times, in the last days, people are worried, people are anxious, people have no hope, no direction, no firm foundation, and as bondservants of God, our master is what? He's in total control. He's in total control of everything. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's got us in his hand. No one can snatch us out of his hand as long as we're in Christ. So whom do we have to fear? That should bring peace to our souls. The one who owns us, who cares for us, and redeemed us is in total control. Contrast that with the false prophets. The false prophets in the day of the apostles and the false prophets in our day. Listen, listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, But false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Who have they denied? They've denied Christ. They've denied God. They have denied the master who bought them. Do we have any false prophets in our day? How many people prophesied that Trump would win the second term? A lot of false prophets in our day, leading people astray, leading people to deny the master who bought them. It's heartbreaking. Now, the great, one of the great paradoxes in the Christian faith is that being enslaved to God is the most freeing thing you can do. Right? Let me say that again. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith is being enslaved to God is the most freeing thing you can do. What's a paradox? It's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And in this case, is proven to be well-founded and true when we're talking about bringing our lives into subjection to God. Listen to what Jesus said again, John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. You used to be a slave to sin. You are now a slave to God. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. What are we free from? What has Christ set us free from? Free from guilt, free from shame, 
free from the power of sin and the enemy in our lives. You know, when I'm working at the rescue mission and it's been crazy lately, um, it seems whenever I'm asked to teach here on Wednesday nights, the rescue mission asks me to teach a lot more. And praise God, it keeps me busy. They asked me yesterday afternoon, last minute, hey, can you teach a message to the guys? And I said, praise God. And then they asked me, hey, can you teach Wednesday morning to the guys? And can you also teach Thursday morning to the guys? And so I'm going, okay, I've got a Wednesday night teaching. I can somehow put these all together. I can look at some past notes. Any opportunity that I can get, I want to minister to these men there. And you know what I tell them? Because some of them have been taught this teaching of once you're saved, you're always saved, right? Profess Christ with your mouth, but your life's are far from him, but that's okay. If you said a prayer 30 years ago and you're not living for him, that's okay. You can, you're still saved, right? And I tell them, you think you're free. You think living for yourselves, and it's okay to go back to that drug addiction. Just maybe after you graduate, the thought of going back, it's not that big of a deal because if you go live in that sin and you go practice that sin, well, it's okay because you've been taught once you receive Christ into your life, then you can't fall away. And I tell them, you're not free if that's your mindset. You need to submit to the Lord. You need to give your entire life to him. You need to submit to the God of the universe. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16 and 17. It says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to God. And it goes on to say in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. The NIV, the NLT, the New King James put it this way, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you derive your benefit. You were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to a new master. Sin used to be master over you. How many of us could say in our past life, sin ruled us? We couldn't do anything but sin, no matter how hard we tried. Without Christ in our lives, that was our master. We have a new master. We've been set free from the bondage, just like the Israelites were set free from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. They were set free to follow their new master. And what did they want to do? They wanted to go back, right? Remember the leeks and the onions and all that good food back in Egypt? They forgot they were in bondage. They forgot that the Egyptians were their slave masters and they wanted to go back. And that's what can happen in our lives if we're not careful, if our eyes aren't on Christ, if we don't realize who we are in him. We are slaves to God, the one who said in Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31, a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from my consent. And you are worth more than many sparrows. We're bondservants to the one who says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. 
We're bondservants to the one who says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Psalm 55, 22. We're bondservants to the one who says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. We're a bondservant to the one who says we will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 12. We're bondservants to the one who bought us with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. And we're bondservants to the one who says that nothing will separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 39. I mean, who else would you rather submit your entire life to other than God and other than Christ. This is the one we love. This is the one that we cherish. We should willingly and joyfully submit every part of our lives to him. Once again, contrast this with the false prophets. The false prophets, the ones that the people of this world are submitting to and following after and putting their hope and trust in as many were in the days of the apostles. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17 through 19 says, these these false prophets, they're springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For while speaking out arrogant words of no value, they entice by fleshly desires. By indecent behavior, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. What do the false prophets promise? Verse 19, the false prophets promise them freedom. They promise freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what anyone is overcome, by this he is enslaved. False prophets are enslaved by their own lusts. They're promising people freedom. For by, it closes and ends when it says, for by what anyone is overcome, by this he is enslaved. How do we overcome? Revelation We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of his testimony, for we will love not our lives even unto death. That's how we overcome, by keeping our eyes on Christ. This world is on sinking sand. They're putting their hopes and their dreams and their lives and they're building them upon science, right? Politicians, people in power, people of this world that are perishing, that will pass away but we have our lives and we stake our lives on the solid rock, Jesus Christ. The world we live in promises freedom. Have you ever heard our bodies, our rights, or my body, my rights? I think I saw a video recently online and there was a bunch of women just yelling and, I don't know, banging pots together, going crazy. I don't know what they were doing. It, 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 was, it was a crazy video, but they're saying, my body, my rights, chanting, my body, my rights, right? I'm on my throne. I'm in control. I'm not submitting to anyone. I'm not submitting to, to God. My body, my rights. Probably heard the slogan, we're free to live however we want, free to do what I want any old time. Do what you want. That's the whole of the law. That's how people are living right now. Do whatever you want. There's no consequences, LGBTQ, and the list goes on and on. Live however you want, hook up with whoever you want, marry whoever you want, 
do whatever you want, no consequences. And they'll even go as far as to say, and God loves you too. And God approves of that. It's amazing where this world is headed, but it shouldn't catch us by surprise. What does it say in Titus chapter 1, verse 16? They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. That's what's heartbreaking is that these philosophies, these, these false teachings, these false prophecies, these false prophets are creeping their way into the church. Even the president, right, professes to know God, professes to be in good standing with the Catholic Church, professed to know God, but what? His deeds. By his deeds, he denies him. I've been using the example, the illustration, where I work with the men at the mission. I said, hey, if I told you I played baseball in college, and I played baseball at Cal Lutheran, if I told you that, and you showed up on a Saturday morning during the game, and you watched the game, and you didn't see me on the field, and you didn't see me in the dugout, And you went up to the coach after the game and you say, hey, do you know Nick Panieri? And he goes, I don't know who Nick Panieri is. Who's Nick Panieri? And then you come to my house and you look in my trunk of my car and you don't see a baseball bag and you don't see a bat and you don't see a glove and you don't see any equipment. You don't see any Cal Lutheran University jerseys. But I told you, and I tell the men, if I were to tell you, no, but I'm on the team. I'm I'm on the CLU team. You got to believe me. Are you going to trust me? They say, no, of course not doesn't add up. And I say, that's right. I made the profession to you. I'm telling you I'm on the team, but by my deeds, I'm not. You can look at my life. You can look for the proof. And I say, you know what? I actually did play on the CLU baseball team. 2010, right around there. I forget now. I'm getting old. But I said, you can come to my house right now. I've got that old CLU beat up hat somewhere. I've got the sweat stains on it. I've got a couple awards. I've got an old baseball glove. I've got the cleats. Go, go over to CLU right now, and if you can find Marty Slimak, he's the head coach, and he'll say, yeah, I know Nick Paneri. Yep, he was on the team. He played center field. And I'll say, I'm professing it, and I can back it up, right? And I look at the guys at the mission, and I'm going to look at them tomorrow morning, and I'll tell them the same thing. Does your life back up your profession? Don't just tell me you're a Christian. Show me. If I followed you around, if I looked on your phone and I pulled up your history and I went and I saw how you interact with other guys at the mission and I see you throughout the week, is there proof? Or by your deeds, are you denying Christ? Are you his bondservant? Have you submitted your entire life to him? That's what it means to be a Christian. And I'm convinced as this world is growing darker and darker that we need to shine brighter and brighter. And how can we do that if we look just like the world? We can't. There needs to be a difference. We need to be holy. We need to be set apart. They need to know that God is our Lord, that he is our master, that we are his bondservants, that we submit to him. And when they see that, they're going to see a difference in our lives. And we can back up our profession with our walk, with our deeds. Let me give you five ways. Get a little practical here for a couple minutes. Five ways bond servants of God should live in this dark world. 
Point number one is bondservants. We should not be seeking the approval of man, but of God. Galatians 1.10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's saying, yeah, that was my old life. When I was a Pharisee, I was all about pleasing people. I wanted to move up in the ranks. I wanted the power, the prestige, money, the accolades. That was my past life, pleasing people. But now I'm a bondservant of Christ. I'm a new creation. I'm a new person. I'm owned by another. I'm not seeking the favor of people. I'm not striving to please people. And it can be so tempting in our life. It can be so subtle for us to want to live up to some of the world's standard, maybe at work maybe in the business field, in the business place where we work or where you work. But we shouldn't be ashamed, like Paul says in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What are we ashamed of? What are we ashamed of? Several years ago, I was pursuing a career in the fire department, right? I had an uncle who was helping me along the way, an uncle that I love very much. He let me live with him for three months. I was newly married. My wife, Leah, who many of you know, if you go here to Blessed Hope Chapel, she moved back in with her parents, and I moved out to Riverside with my uncle. I went to a three-month fire academy. Praise God, I graduated. I got my EMT license. My uncle was helping me along the way. He's a fire chief. He said, Nick, do this, 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 and this. If you do all these things, I'm going to help you become a firefighter. And so I got uh, my EMT license. I worked on an ambulance for several years. I went through the fire academy. I took fire classes. I was volunteering. I was a junior varsity baseball coach at Grace Brother, and I was involved in the community. I was trying to do different things to get hired as a firefighter. But you know what? What was motivating me? I really didn't want to let my uncle down. I didn't want to let people down that were encouraging me to be a firefighter. And after a while, I started to think, why am I so motivated by what they think? I want to please God. I'm a bondservant of God. God, what do you want for my life? If this is what you want, then I'll praise you and I'll keep going down that path as long as you want. But if it's not where you want me, and what if they think that I'm a failure maybe? Not that they would, but what if people go, oh man, why would you turn that down? And I said, God, this happened over a period of months, maybe a year or two, I was just pleading with God. God, I want you to be pleased with my life. If you want me to flip burgers the rest of my life, I'll do that. If you want me to be a missionary, I'll do that. If you want me to serve the church, I'll do that. Whatever you want, You're my Lord, you're my master, I'm your slave, I'm your bondservant, here I am, send me, whatever it may be. Let's not please, strive to please men with our lives, let's strive to please God in all our decisions. Another example of this in my life was when I was rededicating my life to the Lord in my early 20s, and I had friends that were still in the world, and one thing we would do before I rededicated my life to the Lord was we'd go to the movie theater all the time. 
We'd play poker on the weekends. We'd go to the movie theater. We'd watch a movie. We'd hang out. Compared to the rest of the world, we didn't really do, like, horrible things. We'd watch football games, hang out, play poker, whatever. Go to the movies. Well, the Lord just grabbed a hold of my heart around 21. And I said, I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. I'm done with that. I'm done with my old lifestyle. But I still wanted to reach out to my friends, and they'd keep inviting me to the movie theater. And I'd go, and I'd watch the movies. But my heart started to get convicted after a while. And I said, I don't want to watch this stuff anymore. A lot of these movies are grieving God's heart. But you know what? I was too ashamed to tell them, hey, these movies God doesn't approve of. These movies cause me to sin in my mind and in my heart. I, and I can't go anymore. At first I was afraid. What are they going to think of me? They're going to think I'm some weird Christian. And I'm ashamed of that now. But praise God, I'm, now it's like, I love the Lord, okay? And if anything breaks his heart, I'm, I'm not doing it. And let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, right? I still need to be careful with my walk. Can't get proud. But I just have to say, Lord, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, if anything in my life offends you, show me, Lord. Search my heart. Show me if there's any wicked way in me and help me not to be ashamed of you, but to strive to please you and not strive to please man. Second way, we as bondservants of God should live in this dark world. We should be kind. We should be patient. We should be gentle. Where do I get that from? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul tells young Timothy, bondservants, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition, if perhaps they may come to repentance. And he goes on to say they are ensnared by the devil to do his will. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. If you turn on social media, if you turn on the news, it's just fighting all the time. People are rude, impatient, they're lacking gentleness. And as Christians, we need to model what it means to look like Christ. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. People should should see us Christians as gentle and humble in heart, just like our Savior. How are you when people attack your character? How do you react when someone cuts you off? He who's faithful in little is faithful in much. If we can't control our tongue, if we can't be patient, if we can't be slow to anger in the little in the little things of life, how are we going to do it in the big things of life? So we need to grow as Christians in kindness and patience and gentleness. And every time I see that word gentleness, for some reason I think of that's a womanly characteristic, right? That's a womanly attribute, a gentle and contrite spirit before the Lord. But it's actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells Timothy to pursue gentleness as well. Third way we should live as bondservants in this world, we should be ready and willing, as I've been saying, to obey our master 
at all costs. Listen to what Paul tells actual slaves in the first century and how they're, and how they're to obey their earthly masters. He says in Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey those who are your human masters in everything. Not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So if Paul's telling actual slaves in his day to obey their masters in everything, how are we as slaves of God to obey him? Probably in everything, right? Do we obey? I feel like I need to say this because whenever I get into the application part of some of my teachings, I can almost hear people at times say, isn't this works-based? It's all about work, 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 and it becomes some sort of burden, right? And Jesus said, my commandments are not burdensome. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. But all throughout the scripture, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We can't work for our salvation. We can't earn it. Christ paid it all on the cross. He did all the work for us. We put our faith and trust in him. We're justified. We're saved. And now the process of sanctification then begins to where the rest of our life, we work, we serve, we love. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We love because he first loved us. So we give our lives back to him because he gave his life to us. So we want to be pleasing to him in everything, every part of our life. Fourth point, bond servants bring everything in their life. I've been saying this throughout the teaching. Everything in your life and everything, thoughts, passions, desires. We bring them all under the subjection and authority of Christ. We subdue, we conquer, and we put to death any sin in our life. Those are pretty, that's a pretty radical statement, right? Subdue, conquer, and put to death sin in your life. Where do I get that from? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew five twenty nine: If your eye causes you to stumble, what are you to do? Say, oh, it's no big deal. Once saved, always saved, Jesus. I was already saved. Remember, I gave the altar call. If my eye causes me to stumble, so what? No, that's not what he says. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. It's better for you to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell with all your parts, he says. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, for me personally, have been some of the verses that I have turned to to help me overcome sin in my life over the last several years. Probably more than any other verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete practices self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it to receive an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as if one beating the air, but I beat down my body and I make it my slave. So after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
Do you know what Paul is saying there? I will not allow an Olympian who is running for a prize that's going to perish outdo me in my race with the Lord, in my relationship with the Lord. I'm not going to allow that person in the Olympics to outdo my discipline in beating down my sinful flesh, my sin nature, and making it my slave. Michael Phelps, an article I looked up, and I've shared this several times with the young adults, for six years straight, he did not miss one day of, get, of getting in the pool for several hours a day. Every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for six years straight. Hours and hours a day swimming. Dedication, discipline. Didn't matter if it was his birthday, didn't matter if there was a funeral, didn't matter if there was a wedding, didn't matter if he was sick, didn't matter if his friends wanted to hang out. He was getting in the pool for several hours a day. Why did he do that? He wanted to be the best. He wanted the gold medal. He wanted the prize. And what is Paul saying in these verses in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27? I think he's saying, do you see a person like that? Do you see that kind of discipline? Discipline your body the same way. Discipline your sinful flesh the same way that Olympian does. Beat your body down. Fight the good fight. Put those things to death. Crucify the flesh and its passions and desires. So he says he makes these desires his slave. Is that how you view the sin in your life? I'm afraid far too many Christians don't deal with sin this severely in their lives. But we see this kind of language all over the New Testament. We see this picture of putting sin to death. You even see it in Romans 8, 13, and 14. Those who live according to the flesh must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We need to put the sin in our life to death. All of it. We make it our slave. The NIV says, I strike a blow to my body. The worstly New Testament says, I mortify my body and I bring it into subjection. The Weymouth New Testament says, I hit hard and straight at my own body. This is 1 Corinthians 9.27. I hit hard and straight at my own body and lead it off into slavery. Lest possibly after I have been heralded to others, I myself should be rejected. Some would say, oh, Paul's just talking about being disqualified from service. Paul's saying, you know, if he goes on living and practicing sin, he can no longer serve the church. He can no longer pastor and evangelize and do all those things. He's still a Christian, though. That's not what it's talking about there. It's talking about being utterly rejected, a docamos, like a coin in the first century that was no longer to be in use because you could no longer see the imprint on the coin. It was to be discarded and thrown into the trash. And Paul said, That's why I continue to beat down my body so I'm not thrown away as well, so I'm not severed from Christ, so that I do not fall from grace. Me fighting this good fight, me putting sin to death is proof that the Spirit of God is living in me. It's proof that I am a Christian. When he says I beat down my body, the Greek word there is hupopiazo. It's used one other time in the entire New Testament. And it's used in Luke 18.5. Do you guys remember the story when this woman keeps going to the judge 
over and over and she's pleading her case. And she says, grant me my decision, grant me my decision, grant me my decision. And the judge, it says, even though he's not a believer, even though he doesn't love God, what does the judge say? He says, okay, fine. Your decision has been granted. Stop wearing me out. It says the woman has wore him out. Essentially, he's saying the woman has beat me down. The woman has given me a black eye. That's the Greek word, hupo piazo. To beat someone down, to harass under the eye. Give someone a black and blue eye. And that's what Paul's saying I do with my body. I beat it down. I make it my slave. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Do you ever feel like that? Your passions and desires? feels like this war within you. The passions and the feelings and the urges and the desires can be so strong. And what I tell the guys at work, I say, you have to crucify those desires. Don't even open the door one inch. I had a guy come to my office I think it was just last night, and he said, Nick, I got to be honest with you, I want to go back to drugs. He said, the thought of um, getting high right now is just so appealing, and I need your help. He goes, I, I, I just really want to leave the gates here at the mission, and I want to go out there and get high. What do I tell him? Well, it's, I mean, you're a Christian. He professes to be saved. He played the drums in his church. Do I deal with that lightly? They say, well, it's no big deal. If you do that, you know, God will forgive you. No, I shared many of these scriptures with him. I told him, you're a Christian. You're a bondservant of God. These fleshly lusts are waging war against your soul. Abstain from them. Crucify your flesh. Beat down your body. Make it your slave. Satisfy yourself in Christ. Don't go after the broken cisterns. Don't go after the imitation I said, Satan's dangling this carrot in front of you. It's like he, he's putting power bait in front of you. And, and I said, we're like fish talking right now. And I'm like, hey, there's some power bait over there. And you're like, oh, really? Power bait? That looks really good. Where God's got this whole storehouse of real worms, real food for us. Don't fall for the power bait. There's a hook. He's going to reel you right in, and he's going to destroy you. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. We have to have these scriptures on our hearts, imprinted on our hearts and on our minds so that we can bring these to the forefront of our minds to encourage each other, to speak truth into each other's lives and to call into our own lives when we're struggling with sin. So praise God, he said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay for now. And I prayed with him and I shared with him and I poured out my heart to him and I continue to pray for him and all the guys there because it can be hard emotionally and spiritually, when you pour into people and they still choose sin. It can be heartbreaking. But once again, that could be any of us if it's not for God's grace. We need to be careful in our walks with the Lord. Point number five, as I get ready to close here. Bond servants of God realize that when we live in full submission to God, when we relinquish all of our rights, we're actually following, we're following in the glorious footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ. When we're living as bondservants, we're following in Christ's footsteps. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a what? Taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man and having the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came down from his glorious throne in heaven to be what? A bondservant, a doulos, to be a slave. Even though he was in the very form of God, what does that show us? He took on the form of a bondservant. He actually was a bondservant. He actually was born flesh and blood, and he actually was and is fully God and now fully man. So when we live as bondservants, we are walking in the glorious footsteps of Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate example. Jesus said in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John four thirty four. What's your food? What sustains you? What keeps you going? What energizes you in life? It should be to do the will of our Father. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's being a bondservant. Jesus is saying, I'm doing your will, Father. Whatever you want from me. You want me to go to the cross? You want me to bear the sins of the entire world upon myself? Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. I'm a bondservant. My desire, Father, is to go back. My fleshly desire as a human, the hypostatic union, the mystery of that is to go back. But you're telling me to go to the cross, Father, and it's your will that will be done. I want to do your will. So when your desires as a Christian, your fleshly desires tell you to go back, go back to your sin nature, to not continue to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to not continue to walk in purity and righteousness and holiness, we need to look to Christ and we need to have that same attitude in ourselves. We need to continue to do the Father's will. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Matthew twenty twenty eight. just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Savior came as a bondservant. He came to do the Father's will. He came to serve. He came to love. It was all about the Father and others. And that's how it should be for us as Christians. We got, we need, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So in closing, let's surrender everything to God. Give him your dreams, give him your desires, give him your futures, give him your anxieties, give him your worries, give him your sin, give him your shame, give him your guilt, and lay it all at the foot of the cross. Here it is, Father. Here it is, Lord. Here's my life. And when you do that, and when you submit it all to Christ, then you can walk in true newness of life, true freedom as bondservants of Christ. And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me in the days ahead. Let's continue to encourage and spurn one another on to love and good needs, good deeds. We cannot do this alone. We need each other in these dark days. Let me pray. Father, 